Most of you are there already. That's good. Except Justin. One more handshake. Then he's good. Good. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central and uh, certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. It's always good to gather and give praise to our great God as the gathered church. Um, Mark and Debbie and the kids are away this morning. Uh, Joe was here during worship, but he's left, uh, not because I'm preaching, uh, but because he has, uh, Joe's, Joe's cousin passed away this week, and so he's headed with his parents to Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, to do the funeral there at four o'clock, so we can be, we can be praying for him. Uh, she was a believer, and so uh, there's mourning, but we're not mourning as those with no hope. And so we can be praying for Joe as he uh, goes down there and helps the family through that, but also preaches Jesus uh, during the funeral, okay? So uh, let's just pray for him and pray for our mourning as we get into God's Word, and then, we'll, and then we'll jump in. So Father, we're so thankful that you've already done so much this morning. You've been speaking to us. You've been encouraging us. You've been lifting our heads with truth. We get to rejoice in you, and we just pray that you would continue to do that. We pray for Joe as he travels to Spring Hill. Just give him safety, and we just pray that you would be with him as he stands in a difficult time. Uh, funeral's never, never easy, but we just pray, Father, that your spirit would be on him and that you would equip him and anoint him to preach truth. And we pray, Father, that you would do a good thing in the midst of this difficult time. We pray, Father, that you're able to do a good thing in the midst of this difficult time, that people would see Jesus for who he is and they would receive his grace. And we just pray this morning as we get into your word that your spirit would give us understanding, your spirit would apply it to our lives. Uh, we don't want to just read your word. We don't want to just look in a mirror and go away and forget what we look like. We want to be changed this morning. And so we pray that you would do it, that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been in 2 Corinthians for a while. Uh, when, I've, when I've been up here, this is the 15th message. I was just looking to see how long we've been in here. So some of you might think we're going too slow and want to get it done. For those of you who are thinking that way, I'm not going to give much encouragement this morning because we're only doing two verses. <laughs> so we're on a snail's pace. But it's good. And uh, we had a great Sunday last week. And uh, Mark, uh, looking at Mark chapter 7, it was certainly an impactful time. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. We had a great conversation at our life group this week all about Jesus and his interaction with that Syrophoenician woman and just his compassion to heal. It was great. And uh, last Sunday, my youngest daughter, Lydia, was in, in the meeting. She wasn't a huge fan of the FHS cafeteria, and so she stayed in with us. And we were talking about Mark's message. And, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, him talk about Jesus walking around with his sunglasses on. And then he looked up to heaven when he healed the guy and said, alfalfa. So now I've got you intrigued if you hadn't heard Mark's message last Sunday and you'll want to go back and, and give it a listen, all right? Jesus look up to heaven and say, alfalfa. She's not far off. She took a lot in. 
Jesus was not wearing sunglasses, though. <laughs> All right, so, but this morning we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we've been going through the book slowly, but, but we'll get there, all right? So if you remember last time, we looked at verses 11 to 15, and we saw how Paul kind of outlined some enemies of living courageously for God. He's been talking about how when we're confident about our future, about our future glory with Jesus, that we can live courageously now on earth. And he showed us that we looked at how when we get absorbed with ourselves or we're seeking the approval of others or we become apathetic to God's love, that really creates an obstacle for us living courageously on earth, to live courageously in our walk with God. And so now, in beginning in verse 16, Paul's going to show us how the gospel changes how we see things. So I don't have any props today. I did put one of those viewfinder things, but I don't have sunglasses to keep switching off. But Paul's going to show us how the gospel changes how we see things, all right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so I want us to see this morning how the gospel changes how we regard ourselves, how we regard Jesus, and how we regard others. And so to do that, we're going to work our way backwards through the two verses. So we'll start with 17, then we'll go to the end of 16, then we'll go to the first of 16, all right? So we'll work our way backwards, uh, and hopefully it will make sense as we go. That's the, that's the hope, at least. And so we'll work our way backwards this morning, all right? So let's start with verse 17. It's one of the more popular verses, not only in 2 Corinthians, but in the, in the whole Bible, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's also a great children's song by the Risers. Uh, if you have children, you should check them out. Great song. It was going through my head lots when I was writing this. And uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Ben, if I was on the ball, we could have got the Smiths and the McGuigans up. We could have done a family band, and it would have been amazing. But I wasn't on the ball, and so you just got me. <laughs> that was the first thing Nathaniel said when I told him I was preaching on 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, oh, that's a good riser song. So it gets the word in the kids, all right? But Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul's showing us that the gospel gives us a new regard for ourselves. It gives us a new way to view ourselves. It gives us a totally new way because the gospel radically transforms us. The change is so dramatic that the only way Paul can describe it is as a new creation, as a new creation. We have been recreated. We have been recreated. It can become quite frustrating when words lose their meaning, whether over repetition or would they become so trendy that they just become just filler words 
and we just throw around and they cease to have the impact that they should, right? Case in point, epic, right? Remember the good old days when we just used the word epic for something that was on maybe a big scale that had a massive impact on the world, right? You only, there was a day, I remember way back in my mind, when you only heard the word epic when you were in like ancient literature class talking about Homer, okay? But now, now epic is used from a guy falling off a skateboard to an epic Instagram post and it just becomes nothing, right? What does epic mean anymore? It means nothing. It's just a filler word that we throw around. The word epic has lost all meaning and impact. And in Christianity, unfortunately, we have the same thing, where we have words that we use so much and we just throw them around quite carelessly that they lose all impact and meaning. And probably the Christian equivalent to epic is the phrase, born again. Born again. It gets thrown around so much that it's lost the impact of what it is. Even when we use it in relation to our faith, it becomes quite jumbled and twisted. I saw an article where this week where an actress was interviewed and she said, before I got into the entertainment business, I used to be so born again. So many questions with that phrase. How does one used to be born? Okay. How does one used to be born? How does that work? Also, how is someone so born? <laughs> right? We have five kids. All of them were just born. <laughs> there were not one that I looked and said, well, the other four were born, but this guy, he is so born. <laughs> right? We just throw it around and we get it all jumbled and twisted and it just has no meaning. And oftentimes in the world, born again refers to some sort of a fresh start a business, an idea, a country, anything at all that's getting kind of a new beginning can be referred to as being born again. Often athletes who enjoy a bit of resurgence in their careers are said to be born again. Or when a musician experiences a level of regret over a recent arrest, they refer to them that regret and that kind of change in their life as being born again. They speak of a new birth. But that's light years away from Paul's imagery here in verse 17. And although Paul doesn't use the term born again, that's the concept he has in mind when he talks of us being a new creation. A new creation. In John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In his letter to Titus, Paul refers to our regeneration. Peter speaks of being born again in 1 Peter 1, 23. And in 1 John 5, 1, John writes, Whoever, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's all the same thing. Paul uses just slightly different words when he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay? So it's not different things. We're born again. We're newly created. We're born of God. We are regenerated. So often our Christianity is presented along the lines of sins 
forgiven. Jesus died on the cross because of your sin. You come to Jesus, you believe in him, and you have your sins forgiven. And most often when we think about our relationship to God and our salvation, we think along those lines of forgiveness. And that's good. There's certainly nothing wrong with thinking about our salvation along those lines. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's good to think about that. By his blood, we're forgiven for our trespasses according to his grace. Through his blood, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. We should reflect on God's forgiveness for us. But I would encourage us not to stop there because our salvation is so much more than just sins forgiven. When we stop there, our view of Jesus' work in our lives is somewhat incomplete. And so we lose something of the glory of the reality of our salvation. Among other things, the conversion experience is a creative act of God comparable to Genesis 1 when God makes a new man and a new woman in the Garden of Eden. All right? I don't know if you've thought about your salvation along those lines, but Paul is showing us that when we're convert, when, in our conversion, in our coming to Jesus, we are a new creation. It's much more than just sins forgiven. It's much more than just sins forgiven. You are newly created by God. You are newly created by God. Exactly what happens in this recreation is a bit of a mystery to us. Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or where it goes. So it is for everyone who is born of the Spirit. So for us to describe the inner workings of what that is and what, it, what all the kind of the inner details of it would be like asking Lydia to describe the, the process of the wind, right? She can feel it on her face. She knows that it's blowing, but it's beyond her grasp to describe it to us. It's beyond my grasp to describe what exactly happens when we become new creations. But we know that once we were spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, but we've been made alive to God. In a very real sense, we have been recreated. We have been born again. We don't understand how this happens or what exactly God does to us in this new spiritual life, but we know we have been newly created. We are a new creation. And notice as well, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's more than just our spirits. It's more than just a new spirit. It's, just not, that our, it's not just that our spirits were dead before. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead. That we were dead to God in trespasses and sins. So it's not just that our spirits are made alive. Every part of us is affected by the new creation. Every part of us is affected by this recreation 
of God. We are made new creations. So unlike in the world, being born again is not a new start to life. Being born again is a new life to start with. It is a new life to start with. It's not just some external habits and New Year's resolutions to make you better. It's an internal working of God making you new. It's not getting rid of some bad habits and adopting a new list of do's and don'ts. Sam Storms calls it a radical, pervasive, spiritual recreation of the inner being. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you can praise and you can dance and you can rejoice, not just because your sins are forgiven, but you can joy, rejoice and dance and shout because you can say, I have been made new. I have been made new. I am an utterly new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. The cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, gives us a new regard for ourselves. It gives us a new regard for ourselves. We are not who we once were. We are not who we once were. We have been made new. So yes, in some respects, you are just a sinner saved by grace. But more than that, you are something utterly, entirely, radically new. You have been spiritually recreated in your inner being by the Holy Spirit. And the worldly principles, perspectives, relationships, values, priorities that once dominated your life are now old things that have passed away. New things have come. It is epic. <laughs> it is epic. You are part of a new covenant, a new promise to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You're part of a new humanity, God tearing down the dividing walls between races, uniting us in Christ. As Jody said, you are part of a new family. You have a new power as the Spirit dwells in you. You have a new hope, a new standing before God, a new destiny. Revelation speaks of you having a new name, of a new city coming on a new heaven and a new earth where we will one day stand with new eyes in our newly resurrected bodies and behold our newly crowned king as he lifts our vision of the greatness of his salvation, that it goes beyond just you and me as he sits on his throne and boldly declares, behold, I have made all things new. Amen. That is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And instantly, old things like sadness and pain and crying and death will pass away. Those are part of the old things. When Jesus declares, behold, I am making all things new. So that's why Paul says we need to behold. We need to behold these things. Behold, the new has come. And I think some of us this morning are struggling and enslaved to old things because, in, because we haven't given the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17 
the proper weight it deserves in our lives. We aren't regarding ourselves the way God regards us. And so we keep living as if these old things had claim over our life. Whether those old things are stubborn habits that keep popping up, false beliefs about our identity, destructive relationships, the God who was loving enough and strong enough to create you anew uses that same love and strength to supply you with the resources needed to live consistently with what you are. The same God who was loving enough and powerful enough to create you anew uses that same love and power to supply you with all that you need to live consistently with what you are, a new creation. Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, summarizes our whole pursuit of holiness in the Christian life like this. Be who you are. And then he goes on to say, that may sound strange, almost heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself, but like so many of the worst errors of the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're stumbling upon something that is very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you that he is talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way. But he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. So look, we have an enemy who wants us to believe that Christian maturity is just a pipe dream reserved only for the spiritually elite, that we'll never be free from the sin that seems to so easily entangle us, and that our future will be nothing more than our past failures just played on loop. And the world comes in that desperate situation, and it offers this and that, new method, new product, new thing to try, but they're all just empty promises. The best that they can offer is just to numb the pain for a little while and provide a momentary escape. In our, that situation, the only thing we can take to the bank is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I have been made a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. We can push all our chips in on that. With Satan's accusations, the empty promises of the world, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Mark talked last, last week about when Satan comes and he says, oh, this, and you're unworthy, and, and we can say, yes, we are unworthy, and even more than you know. And the other side of the coin is, and behold, I've been made a new creation. I'm not who I once was. It's not just that my sins are forgiven. I am utterly, entirely radically new new we have a new regard for ourselves we need to see that do you see that this morning if you are in Christ you are a new creation you are a new creation secondly we have a new regard for Jesus this new creation brings with it 
a new criteria for evaluating what is valuable and true. It comes with a new criteria for evaluating what is valuable and true. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Water bottle broke. So what's Paul talking about here? Regarding Jesus according to the flesh. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? But not doing so anymore. He's saying, one, one time I regarded Jesus according to the flesh, but I don't do that anymore. What does that mean? When Paul talks about regarding Jesus according to the flesh, he's not talking about personal knowledge of Jesus while he was on earth teaching it seems most likely that, that, that Paul had never met Jesus before he, became, before he came face to face with the risen, exalted Jesus on the Damascus Road. Neither is he talking about regarding Jesus in his humanity over against knowing his divinity. What Paul is referring to is his pre-Christian evaluation of Jesus. That's what regarding Jesus according to the flesh means. The NIV is more helpful. It says from a worldly point of view, regarding Jesus according to a worldly point of view. It means regarding someone in accordance with the standards and values that come from living as if this physical world, as if this physical life in this world is all that exists. Regarding someone in accordance with the standards and values that come from living as if physical life in this world is all that exists. So before he became a Christian, that's the lens that Paul saw Jesus through. And so Jesus was a blasphemer. He was a pretender. He was a, a con man. By the world's standards, who is Jesus? When we look at Jesus through the lens of what the world values, who is he? He's not much. He's not much. He didn't write a bestseller. He didn't have any wealth. He didn't build an empire of business. He didn't rule a nation or wage war. He didn't have a beautiful family with nice kids who were always polite and excelled in sports. By the world's standards, Jesus doesn't really measure up. And when we, when we ask the question today, who is Jesus, the world looks back and mostly regards him according to the flesh from a worldly point of view. And maybe even some of you here this morning regard Jesus from a worldly point of view. He may have done some nice teaching. He may have done some nice acts that over time got stretched and exaggerated until they became miracles. But ultimately, he was just a fool who took things too far, who said too much, and got himself killed. At best and cursed by God for his own sin at worst. But when we're made new creations, we have a new regard for Jesus. We have a new regard for Jesus. We see him in a new light. Suddenly, we see his unsurpassed worth, that he was not just a good teacher, but he was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. 
His words are not just good advice, like the disciples. They, he alone has the words of eternal life. When we look at the cross, some just see foolishness, but we see glorious grace, the power of God unto salvation. He's no longer just a prophet. He is the prophet, the priest, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. He is the bread of life who fills our hungry souls. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that no one can come to the Father but through Him. He's our good shepherd. He's our friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's our rescuer. He's our savior. Others around us may mock Him. They may ignore Him. They may ridicule Him. But we see Him as beautiful, glorious, all-satisfying. We don't look at Jesus from a worldly point of view because we've been raised above that. We've been made new creations. And so we have a new regard for the beauty and the worth, the magnificence of who Jesus is. And so do you see Jesus that way this morning? Is Jesus glorious to you this morning? Is he beautiful? How do you regard Jesus today? It's certainly my prayer that you would see Jesus as beautiful this morning. That even as the word goes out, suddenly what you once saw as confusing or frustrating or infuriating has become to you satisfying and even captivating that Jesus, the Son of God, even though He knew no sin, would take your sin on the cross and give you His righteousness and make you a new creation and give you a new hope and a future. And that it's nothing that you've done, completely unworthy, but the grace of God lavished out on you. And suddenly your heart says, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is magnificent. Jesus is satisfying. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Suddenly your heart can sing no other name but the name of Jesus. The new creation gives us a new regard for who Jesus is. <coughs> Lastly, we end where Paul started at the first of verse 16. Paul has showed us that with our conversion, it's more than just sins forgiven. We've been a new, made a new creation. We have a new regard for ourselves. We've been made new, and we have a new regard for Jesus. We might not be able to explain it or pinpoint it, but we find ourselves regarding Jesus as beautiful and satisfying. And those points, points one and two, provide the foundation for what Paul says at the very first in verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So first, we're just talking about regarding Jesus according to the flesh. But then Paul, he opens it up wide, doesn't he? And he says, therefore, from now on, we regard 
no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. When we're new creations, because we see Jesus for who he is, we can no longer regard others from that same worldly point of view. The way we used to regard Jesus from that worldly point of view, we know we regard him thus no longer. He's become to us our Savior. He's become to us our King and our Lord and our Rescuer. And then Paul says, now you regard no one from that worldly point of view. Whew. Whew. We regard no one from that worldly point of view. We need to feel the weight of that because in some respects it's one thing for us to view you know, the perfect Son of God not according to the flesh. It can be something entirely different not to view your children according to the flesh or your spouse according to the flesh or your co-worker according to the flesh or your neighbor according to the flesh or the guy you pass on King Street according to the flesh. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, Paul has experienced a radical transformation in how he views and interacts with others, and so should we. Remember what we said according to the flesh means. It means regarding someone in accordance with the standards and values that come from living as if physical life in this world is all that exists. So before his conversion, the standards and the values that were most important to Paul, the things that concerned him the most were, are you a Jew or a Gentile? Are you male or female? Are you educated or ignorant? Are you wealthy or poor? Are you a slave or are you free? What nationality are you? And we all have these personal standards of judgment. We all evaluate people and determine their way, worth based on how they match our criteria. It may be their financial portfolio, their physical attractiveness or fashion, their athletic ability, their educational achievement, or even the color of their skin. We all have a value system that we weigh. But when we become new creations, our whole worldly outlook has passed away. Before Paul became a Christian, what mattered most in his value system, above everything else, was are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? But the cross obliterates any significance in those racial differences. And while our ethnicity remains, it's lost any value in determining our standing before God or our place in the kingdom. What matters now is in Christ or not in Christ. I'm a Canadian. I love my country. But my first allegiance is to the body of Christ, the church. And I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven a new creation awaiting a new city on a new earth. We need to see this. We need to see this. From now on, we're new creations and we regard no one 
according to the flesh. So that rises above race, above gender, above socioeconomic status, above employment, above wealth, above fame, above nationalism. It rises above it all. We're not to look out at others with those lens. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. I don't know if you feel the weight of that like I did this week in preparing. And may God search our hearts and uproot any of this from us. Because to be a thriving, healthy church, we must regard one another not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We must regard one another with spiritual eyes and not worldly standards. What does that mean? That's hard to wrap my head around. What does that mean? We don't regard someone by worldly standards. It might be helpful for you to think of it like this. To see each person you meet as you will see them in a hundred years from now. To see each person you meet as you will see them a hundred years from now. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. To see each person you meet, whether it's in this room, whether it's downtown, whether it's at work, whether it's in your family, in your house, as you will see them a hundred years from now. What does that do? What does that do to your thinking when you think about seeing me? We'll use me as an example. When you think about seeing me a hundred years from now, how does that change your view? How does that lift your gaze? How does that just kind of take everything and all the worldly standards and all the things that we value and say, this is what makes a person valuable. This is what makes someone worth their worth, their significance. It takes all that and just kind of crumples it up and throws it away. All those worldly criteria that we weigh people on. See everyone today as you will see them a hundred years from now. Three things that does for us as we, as we close. When we see each other a hundred years, when we see people as we will see them a hundred years from now, it enables you to bear with my weakness more because you know that in time the Spirit of God will consume that. It enables you to bear with my weakness because you know in time the Spirit of God will consume that weakness. And one day, if you're in Christ, we'll be side by side in the throne room of God serving and worshiping, completely transformed into the perfect image of Jesus for eternity. And so it becomes a little easier to bear with my weaknesses for the next 34, 60 years, 50, 40, whatever it might be. And so as a church, we're able to forgive we're able to encourage instead of grumble against one another. It just lifts everything, doesn't it? And we're able to bear with one another and have that unity together.
The second thing it does is it enables our local church to become more and more a reflection of the worldwide church as we see a people from many different tribes and tongues and colors join together in worship. And we don't say silly things like, I don't see color, as if color is the problem and uniformity is our goal. Color isn't the problem. The value that we place on it is. And uniformity is not our goal. Unity with beautiful diversity is our goal. And that's the true reflection of the church of Jesus Christ because he said he's the lamb who was slain to gather people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And so we have beautiful diversity united together. We cherish our differences. We prefer one another and we rise above the world's value system. And lastly, if we regard no one according to the flesh, if we see each person we meet as we will see them a hundred years from now, then what does that do for our desire to see others come to know Christ? What does that do for our desire to see others come to know Christ? What does that do for our desire to see churches planted? What does that do for our desire to see the gospel go out, to see the kingdom advanced? Because it can be a joyful thing to think I'm going to do this beside Angela for all of eternity. It can be a sobering thing to think of these people I pass on the street, the people I interact with, how will I see them a hundred years from now? And if I view them like that today, then what does that do for my desire to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ so that they too can be in Christ and be new creations awaiting a new city on a new earth full of a new hope with a new power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Do you see that? Do you see how it just completely changes everything that we value? We can become so apathetic. And, and Paul says, regard no one any longer according to the flesh. See them now as you will see them a hundred years from today. And let that that fervent spirit move you forward to graciously share the gospel with them. It motivates our mission, doesn't it? When I think of all the people living in Atlantic Canada and I think, how would I see them in a hundred years? I say, let's get some churches planted. Let's get some alphas run. Let's see the gospel go out. Let's see the kingdom advance. Let's see men and women and children putting their faith in Jesus and rising in worship to him. Does it do that for you? Does it do that for you? Does it begin to tear down the value system that we place and the way that we look out at this world? We're new creations, and so we have a new regard for Jesus. He's glorious. He's satisfying. He's precious. He's beautiful. And not only that, we have a new regard for one another. As we look out at our families, as we look out at our coworkers, our friends, our sports teams, our classmates, we no longer weigh them and value them according to the world's standards. We no longer have a worldly outlook on them. We no longer regard them according 
to the flesh. For Paul, his old value system was torn down and replaced by a greater one. Their nationality, wealth, education, all that didn't matter. All that mattered was, are they in Christ or not? And that's all that matters this morning. Are we in Christ or are we not? Let's pray. Angela and the team can come up.